death. It's the most inevitable part of life. Some might say it's the only guarantee, but it's also a topic that many people shy away from because it makes us feel uncomfortable, scared or upset. It's often swept under the rug, not acknowledged or talked about until, of course, we come face to face with it ourselves. We hope to end this taboo through a series of interviews with many different people from all over Western Australia. We talk to ordinary people about their views on the grief, loss, love and celebration that is death and dying. This is a conversation on death. Sandy, why don't we start with you uh, giving me your name okay. and you know the reason why you're here today and what you want to talk about. Okay, uh, Sandy Mitchell. Um, I lost my dad three or so years ago, maybe coming up on four now, to, well, he got dementia and then died, so I'm not quite sure whether that was the actual cause of it, but, um, yes, just, um, it was some time prior to that that I really got that he was no longer the man he used to be. And signs started showing probably, like, like smallish signs, probably 10 years prior. But, yeah, the gradual process creeps up and then the last three years were cause for concern and, yeah, the last one year was really cause for concern, like the, yeah, quite disturbing experience and, for and, everyone. And was he, was he living with you for most of that he time? He was living in his own home, but in bailing up, it's a small community, only 400 people or so, and so luckily we had just ride down the road and there his house was and across the road my daughter lived, uh, rented and she was able to pop over and cook meals or to keep an eye on him up to a certain point, you know. But, yeah, I, I would just see him every day and hang out and have a beer with him in the afternoon and talk to him and do a few things with him and make sure everything's okay. But, you know, then we'd start getting calls from neighbours, oh, Don's on the corner, Don's just wearing his, you know, his <laughs> jeans, his undies over his jeans and... You know, I think you better get down here. <laughs> it's just uh, something's not right, you know. But being a community, everyone kept an eye out and always rang me and took him home and knew where he lived. So, you know, that's And, quite... and was he independent? Was was that, you know, a thing that he wanted to be in his own home? I knew he wouldn't have been happy if we put him somewhere else that wasn't his home. Even when he stayed over, he started staying over the night at, uh, for the last year at my house. Every night I'd pick him up, feed him dinner, put him to bed and give him breakfast and then take him home again. So those that transition was uh, a little bit easier for me, <laughs> just knowing that he wasn't wandering around in the middle of the night in his house, freezing cold, thinking he was in a submarine and, he, you know, he had no way of getting warm and it was some, sometimes below zero in bailing up. It gets really cold and so I was like, no, this has got to, we, we can't do this anymore. You know, the signs were there you know, leaving the gas on and uh, stuff like that. So time to, to come up for our meals at our house. But even when he'd wake up at our house, he was, where am I? I mean, he was terrified. He'd look at me and not know, you know, like he mostly knew me, but sometimes he would not know who I was and he'd, he'd accuse me of things like I was trying to, you know, kill him or do something like that and it just wasn't true. And I think he had dementia with Lewy bodies, which is a particularly uh, aggressive type of dementia, not just your forgetfulness. It, it got really kind of other backstories going on and there's a bomb going to go off and 
you know, shh, be quiet, you know, they're, gonna, they're trying to blow us up. And you had to go along with it because if you argued with him, you'd get more upset. So you had to say, okay, Dad, we'll go outside, shall we? we tiptoe outside and then I'd say, oh, do you want a beer? Or, you know, like just change the subject and he'd be fine. So you had to learn the skills to take him away from the trauma, you know, and meanwhile you're silently traumatising yourself inside going, this is not my dad, this is someone else completely different. And if he was with us, uh, if he had his faculties, he would hate this, absolutely be appalled, you know. So it kind of feels like listening to you that actually you'd already started that grieving process even before dad had died. Oh, yes, yes, well and truly, yeah, I had... My three brothers, beautiful, supportive brothers, you know, it was so great having brothers or family, siblings, because trying to be a single person dealing with this, I can't even imagine what that was like. Because you can tell your friends, but it's never the same. There was one incident where my brother Russ went to pick Dad up from the airport, human stuff, but he wouldn't get in the car with Russ because he didn't, he just didn't, you know, he thought, you're trying to kidnap me. And you've got an ulterior motive and he was suspicious all the way back to banning up three hours of treating my poor brother like a villain and russ was like come on dad it's me russ you know and i could really see russ was so shattered by that not being recognized for the first time in your life you know you're in your 50s and your dad can't recognize you and you go back to that child place where your dad's angry at you and it kind of all comes back that that fear or trauma of being told off as a kid. It's like, oh, no, Dad's just told me that I'm trying to kill my two ne- my two granddaughters and it's just not true, you know. <laughs> did you ever did you ever wish that he would die? I did, yeah. I remember thinking, how nice would it be if Dad just went to bed and always tucked him in and gave him a foot massage, he'd calm down and I'd kiss him goodnight and say, I love you, Dad, and he'd say... I love you too. Thank you. You know, it was he was often lucid in moments, which was like so beautiful. But then I would go, wouldn't it be great if Dad just never woke up? You know, because I could see how traumatized he was with the whole thing, wake up in the morning and not knowing how to get dressed and just trying to get home. He always wanted to go home. Will you take me home? And I take him to his house and not that home, my home where I'm normal, where everyone I know things like my childhood. It was heartbreaking because I couldn't do it, you know, just didn't exist. When do you think, you know, the penny dropped that actually he needed to be somewhere else and that he couldn't manage it and neither could you? Um, Yes, when he um, just started standing, leaving the home at night, apart from, like I mentioned, leaving the gas on because he didn't have any sense of smell. And we'd walk in there and I was like, gas, it's just you know, totally dangerous. And then I was like, nah, this can't go on. I love the idea of him being at home. It's the last semblance of normality. I didn't want to take that away from him. So with Maddie across the road doing pills and meals, it still wasn't enough. He just couldn't, couldn't, he couldn't get away with it anymore and we couldn't get away with it anymore. The plan was he was going to go into respite for two weeks while I actually got the other part of the house completely set up for him, like a monitor and a, I was going to, you know, so I could have my normal life but I could just keep an eye and an ear on him at night when he's sleeping so he wasn't getting up and getting disturbed. And, you know, I think I had a woman from um, the home care package she said to me, don't do that. 
<laughs> and it was just this. Uh, my husband heard it. I kind of didn't because I was going to give it a red hot go. I'm just going to try everything, you know, if, probably for myself. But her wisdom and her experience in a nice way just said, mm, maybe don't do that, <laughs> you know, because she just knew it was going to be so hard and, yeah. And, I, and after Dad went in for the two weeks, we were getting everything together and then he actually had the biggest meltdown ever and he, they thought he was having a stroke. He just couldn't speak. He, could, he just looked terrified and I think it was all he finally looked around and realised he was in that place that he never, ever wanted to be. Dad was someone that always said, look, if I ever get blah, 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 just push me off a cliff or just mother me, you know, I just don't want to be around. He, he was a great candidate for um, voluntary <laughs> assisted dying, you know, for sure. But when you get dementia, I don't think you have a say, unfortunately. You can't actually say, yeah, when I get dementia, I want to go, give me the pill, you know, because you've got dementia and you're not lucid and you can't say, I want to sign here, you know. It's the biggest travesty because... I reckon those people need it just as much as people that have, say, terminal illnesses or pain, you know. I mean, like you said earlier, you, you're so lucky that you've got siblings to share that yeah. with and that everyone was on the same page. Oh, yeah. You know, you seem like an extraordinary family who are able to talk about these mm. things, but we live in a society mm. where actually death and dying mm. are really difficult topics for people to speak yeah. about. I mean, you know, in some ways they're... Kind of almost the last taboo we've kind yeah. of... We have a fear of upsetting people. I think that's the stem of it. They don't want to bring it up because, oh, it might trigger and it might upset you, which is, you know, rational kind of thinking. But the downside of that is no one talks about it and you feel like, did that really happen? Am I the only one who feels this? I'm alone here, you know. Like, I felt like no one wanted to talk about it and was he not worth talking about? You know, you start telling yourself all these other things that just simply aren't true. Everyone knows he's so worth talking about, but they just probably didn't want to upset me or make me cry. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, you go home and you cry about another reason, which is like, why doesn't anyone want to talk about him, you know? So, yeah. 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 When we spoke last, you, you talked to me about the moment of death with Dad. Yeah. Um, and I wonder whether you can share that again oh, with sure. us. sure. I love that story. It's... There's a strange kind of um, exaltation that comes with death, um, death that is to be expected kind of death, I mean, not just, act, you know, it wouldn't be <laughs> if it was an accidental death, but, you know, Dad was in a kind of coma for about five days where he was just breathing steadily and prior to that he was thrashing and anxious and moaning and trying to talk and freaking out and it was really hard to be with him and hold his hand, you know, because he was so disturbed. And so the last five days were like this transition from that horrible stage into dying and this, this lovely kind of tranquility about that process where we're all able to get around him and just talk to him even though they say hearing might be the last thing that goes and hopefully some of those words went in. And Anyway, this hot January night we were in the kind of like a hospice in the hospital where the family were allowed to kind of be there, or one couple. So Sean and I had a fold-out bed next to Dad's and there was a very loud air conditioner on, so I couldn't quite hear his regular breathing. And it was like four or five in the morning, these two beautiful nurses came in and I was like, oh, yeah, they're just doing his obs to see, you know, turn him and make sure he's still with us. And so they did that. So I was half dozing. Then they walked out again. I thought, oh, yeah. 
must be all right. Still go. He's still with us. Don's still with us. So I was lying there, just about to go back to sleep, and I just something, something profound, like hit me in the chest. It was just this little. I can't even say. Oh, I heard a noise that triggered this. But I sat bolt upright and went. Something's different. Something is different. And I just raced over to the bed, and Dad was just had his eyes shut, but his mouth open. He was looking like he was looking with his eyes shut, like he, he had an alertness, like he was trying to reach out, you know, like that kind of thing. And um, I just went, oh, Dad, like, and I put my mouth right next to his ear, so his mouth was right next to my ear. I said, Dad, are you, are you going or something, words to that effect? I, I'm here. It's okay giving him sort of permission to go. And he just went, ah, like this big, long sigh, like, it, and it was his last breath. And it was like he waited, he called me telepathically. I just feel this is true. Like, why would I just, they'd done his checks and they were like, no, he's fine, out of here. <laughs> and I wasn't leaning on his chest to press the air out or anything like that. It was just this, ah, oh, and it was this, kind of euphoric sigh and I just knew he died in that moment and I was so overjoyed because I would have kicked myself if I hadn't missed that moment. I just would have been like, oh, no, Dad's dead and we weren't holding his hand and, you know, berated myself or, you know, not that, you know, that doesn't matter if you're there or not, I believe, but just personally I just felt so privileged to have been the one to be there, you know, to... And it's like he waited for me. He really did. And, and it was so beautiful. And I I was like, I didn't want to yell out, charge, oh, Dad's died. You know, it was just seemed wrong to do that. So I just stayed with him for you know, five minutes or so, just holding him. And, yeah, it was just so amazing. And and it was like a, a euphoric kind of moment. I wasn't... Teary. I was just overjoyed somehow. I could feel that passing of him to a, a much better kind of place. If feels there like is, it feels like an energy was there. Yeah, it was an energy. It really was. And then when Sean finally came over, and then we didn't even tell the staff. We just got my brother was sleeping out in the car and back to the car. Get Matt. Matt came over, and then we rang Scott, and he came over, and we were just all around and. Oh, look, he's still warm, he's still, you know, he's still kind of here, but he wasn't, but, you know. And then we thought, oh, we better tell them, hey, you know. Just <laughs> like a whole hour later. <laughs> oh, is he? Oh, okay. felt like that in that moment you were closer to him than you had been for oh, all those yeah, years. Oh, yeah, really connected. Yeah, it, you're right. It was this, I hadn't felt that, in that love, um connecting two-way love for some time so yeah it was like a beautiful parting gift it meant the world to me and it wouldn't there'd be nothing else that was equal to that you know do you believe that there is a, a good way to die I do I do yeah you know even though um look he went into that coma as I say so he probably wasn't conscious of pain or he wasn't even on painkillers actually he just, he refused to eat and drink. He, he went in, he broke his hip. That's right, when he was in the two two weeks, he kept standing up and deliberately falling over. I know. And I was like, and they said, no, we can't restrain them. 
So he's, he's going to break his hip. On the fourth time, he finally broke it because he was so fit. He broke, he fell over and broke it and he had the operation mainly for pain. We knew he would walk, but, you know, get rid of the broken bit. And we don't know how long Don's going to be with us. He could be here for a year or so more. And so it seemed crazy. But anyway, he came out of the hospital. He just wouldn't drink water. He spit it out in disdain, like, no, I'm not drinking your water. I'm not eating your food. I'm getting out of here. And I know there's no doubt that he had that conscious decision. I'm not going to, I don't want to be here. You know, he was saying, if you, you know, to everyone, I want to be gone. <laughs> so it yeah, like he, was, he did make his yeah. own decision. Oh, he did. And there's no doubt in my mind. And I was so proud of him, you know, even though, you know, his language and his, his actions were rough. But, you know, I thought, well, he's got a fighting spirit. You've got to give him that. He used what to be in the SAS, you know. He used to be one of those guys. <laughs> what so. did it feel like just, 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 you know, when, when your brothers came and you had that hour. Mm. Oh, yeah. great. Just so intimate, you know, just just like touching, holding his feet and going things like, oh, Dad's got your feet, Matt, you know, like <laughs> just, just talking about life and similarities and playing music and, oh, Dad loved this song and, yeah, let's put that on. And, yeah, then we had lots of tears and crying and, you know, I remember holding his hand on my head and just like he was stroking me like he did when I was little and it was just like so evocative of being a child again and just reliving that that journey of, you know, from the beginning when you're a little baby to, you know, the very end when you're he's your baby, you're looking after him, yeah, like the cycle of life, yeah, it was Profound, painful but profound. <laughs> and in terms yeah. of you know, sort of the 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 funeral, and you say you come from quite a close knit community, mm. you know, a remote mm. community. Yeah, quite, quite everyone is involved in some way or the other. Yeah, a because they all knew him, but yeah. also saying goodbye mm. becomes almost a community thing that we perhaps. You know, in in cities, yeah. don't have as much. No, yes, that's right. Yeah, well, um, we hired a bus for all the locals to get on. Uh, Dad shout, you know, it's the last time he's going to be shouting everyone, and you know, all the beer, everything was laid on. You know, at the Bunbury Rose Hotel, and they all got on, caught the bus, and you know, then they could drink as much as they like, and then just catch the bus home. And you know, I thought, oh, I know Dad would love that. You know, yeah. He was such a great storyteller and, he, you know, I just love when Dad would tell a story about his past. He's actually written it in a book, Memoirs, uh, Manji Boy it's called, and it's just about growing up and managing up as a young boy during the war and post-war. It's just brilliant. Sandy, how important do you think ritual is in the whole oh, death process? Absolutely important, yeah. Yeah, ritual with anything actually <laughs> just makes it really, whether it's, celebrating a birthday or anything. If you if you make a bit of a fuss and put on extra special this or that or play songs or, you know, you suddenly your whole, it just makes it momentous and it, therefore present in your life. And it wasn't just like a passing thing on oh, so-and-so's birthday or anniversary, today was the day they died and we didn't 
didn't do anything, didn't mark the occasion, just seems so ordinary somehow. So, yeah, I think as humans we have a natural uh, leaning towards ritual. Yeah, well, I do. <laughs> Maybe a lot of people don't, can't be bothered, but... Do you, th- do you think modern society yeah. has kind of paired that? Paired that way. Um, I'm, I just live with a lot of people that love partying and ritualising. So, yeah, for me, I'm, I'm not probably the best person to make an assessment on that because, yeah, I, we do that a lot in our lives. I, I think we do in my own personal life. But, yeah, in so many other ways, no, we don't have rituals to um, make momentousness of of something that should be actually acknowledged you know like some some weddings I go to you know people want to skip over their speeches but to me they're the best part that's where all the viewpoints come out and the the flesh out of the characters and um, even if it's someone I don't know that well I love hearing what they have to say about them. So having gone through it at the end of life and at the beginning of life Mm -hmm. What have you taken away the most from having those two kind of death experiences? Yeah. I almost want to talk about every facet of it, especially when it's a child, because that's kind of real heavy territory, you know, you know, which I have had that experience. It's like I felt like no one wanted to talk about it. And, and so, so tell me a little bit about that then. So yeah. Hugo, he yeah. was born um, yeah. premature? Uh, no, he at eight months on an ultrasound they detected that they couldn't see all of his heart and they said, look, we can't really work out what's going on so we'll wait for you to have him. And he's born, you know, three days overdue or whatever. He was born on time. He was a big eight-pound beautiful boy crying, you know, responding. So I was like, oh, great, there is nothing wrong with him because I thought he might have a hole in the heart or something, you know, like babies do. But then they took him off to have x-rays and then they realised he had a um, hyperplastic heart condition, which is you only have two chambers, you need four. And, yeah, they said, look, it's just the worst-case scenario. I mean, it probably isn't now, but back in 1988 it was. And they just said, there's nothing we can actually do. And it's funny, initially I was relieved because I was just thinking of him and I just thought, this little baby going through heart surgery, like, no, you know, I don't want that. It's just too traumatic, you know. But, yeah, if they had had a solution, of course, I would have, you know, probably endured that. But, yeah, that, that in itself was, you know, hard. But, um, yeah, it was just, like, so numbing, an incredibly numbing experience. Just what? Yeah, and luckily I had two little kids already and they just made everything so normalised because they were just holding him and they want to bring him home and have him as a statue and dress him up and, you know, they just bring joy. And I was like, oh, thank God I've got Maddie and Frank. They just saved my life, you know. <laughs> I went home and he lived for three days. And they did say that. They said he probably lived for three days. But it's best you go home and just be surrounded by wee family and friends and that was good advice. And, uh, yeah, everyone came over and my dad... And my brother built this beautiful, this is my dad, you know, with the dementia. This is the sort of wonderful person he was, very creative, and he built this beautiful little coffin because he knew how to make coffins because his uncle used to do it in Bridgetown. And, you know, we thought, okay, let's just sit around the fire and paint this coffin and line it with silk and make it all beautiful. And, yeah, it was just cathartic, I think, you know, all of us doing that. And 
we, we kept him in the house. My sister-in-law was a doctor. She said, you know, you don't have to have anyone come and get involved. Don't, you know, I didn't want anyone to take him away. He was mine and I had such precious little time with him. No one was going to ruin that. I'm, I'm going to be in control of letting go when I'm ready. And it was very strong, clear relief. I thought, yes, good. So we kept him with us and mum was a nurse and she knew how to, you know, deal with that sort of thing, have him there and keep him good and, yeah, we planned the funeral and did it all ourselves and drove down to bailing up because we knew we were moving down there. So we thought, no, we want him in the cemetery there. We don't want him somewhere else, you know, it makes sense. And, yeah, it was just beautiful and incredibly sad and I wouldn't change it, change the way we handled it at all and lots of crying and, you know, yeah, it's just... No intervention from anywhere else. I think that we felt like we had a control and a handle on it. How important is that to, to feel that you are in control? Oh, it's paramount. Like if you're going to deal with something, you don't want someone moving in on your territory and changing things forever because, you know, imagine if someone stepped in and said, no, we've got to take the body now and you've got to bury him this way and you're not allowed to have your coffin, we're going to have out. You know, like if they, you would just be left feeling... A right old mess, and you really need to get on with it. And luckily, we um, had a we got we conceived three months later, I think. You know, I mean, how amazing was that? I can't believe it. Oh, so lucky, and that that really helped in the grieving process. Having another baby for sure. I mean, it's not going to be that baby, but it's a baby. <laughs> and I've had friends that have lost babies, and like, you know, what do you do? How do you cope? And I say, have another one. Get back up on the horse if you can. <laughs> I'm sure that's not, you know, stock standard advice, but that was my advice anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, and, and and that is a similar story when people talk about miscarriages, which is yes. that people don't want to upset you so they don't say anything. Yeah, yeah it's funny. Yeah. I had a friend who had a stillbirth at six months or something quite long term. And I'd just lost Huey, so we were quite close. So it was really great to be able to share. And anyway, she had she gave birth naturally when it was just going to come out. And I made this baby, because because of my experience of how people didn't want to get involved really, I made this baby, even though we knew she died, this whole baby outfits like I sew, you know. So I made this beautiful layette, you know, of all the baby things and, you know, she had a name and it was just, and, you know, the mother's husband didn't really, she thought, he thought that was like inflammatory or, you know, I don't know what word, but she was so touched and she just thanked me so much for being so involved with and acknowledging this child, you know. It really was there and it really was a baby, you know, and her loss was real, so... Well, so did you think that the grieving process for Dad mm -hmm. was different from the grieving process with Huey? Yeah. Did you feel that people around you, not necessarily your family, but yeah. people around you, do you think they reacted differently? Yes, yeah, they were way more like, uh, happy to talk about Don because he was such a colourful character and he had such a big presence because they knew him for so long. And, um, yeah, it was easy for people to talk about Don all the time. So I didn't have any, like, oh, no one's acknowledging or wanting to bring up my dad. Yeah, that was never a problem. So, um, but with you, yeah, babies, I don't know, it's kind of all taboo somehow. Oh, no, it's just, it's it's more, un, 
unlikely. So, yeah, of a baby dying than it is an old, a person of old age. And so, you know, with Huey we only had three days. So, you know, I remember having a little bath with him and little moments of incredible intimacy, you know. And so with Dad, you know, I was trying to make him stay and live with us and I knew, I thought, oh, we can cope with this. And Did you feel that you actually had time to grieve while he was living? Yeah, yes. I would like come home and I would debrief all the time. I think my debriefing was Sean and friends. God bless them for listening. <laughs> it, must have, it was a very intense debriefing few years there that a lot of people had to put up with. But, you know, they were great empathetic friends, you know. But, um, yes, I think through talking was my main... Right, you know, and my friend Lisa, you know, she's got a very elderly mum and we just talked a hell of a lot about, you know, try this, try that and, you know, supporting one another and, yeah. Do you think families get enough support? I don't think there's any such thing as too much support. I think you can always just say, no, I've had enough of this kind of talk, I need to go for a run (laughs) or, you know, but I just think... You can't hurt someone by just always asking the question, let's talk about this and how do you feel? It's so valuable to have that, yeah. Or just being lucky enough to be in a family where you you feel comfortable with someone who's going to actually listen. I think just connecting with people more because you just don't know when they won't be there anymore, you know, and... It's like you just want to make sure the calibre of conversation or or, uh, interaction you have with someone is really like 100% and not crappy or if it's crappy, go back and reiterate and just say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, like it doesn't matter how tiny it is or insignificant. It actually, it helps you deal with it, uh, deal with, say, if someone does suddenly die, you just know in your heart that the last conversation you may have had with them was, was a truthful, total one rather than just a half-hearted, you know. I mean, you can't be like this all the time. It's you know, idealistic to be that way. But just be conscious of that, you know, try and uh, connect more with people. So, I mean, did mum die a long time ago? She did. She died um, 30 years ago cancer and so dad and mum were love of each other's lives and yeah dad dad really he's so brave and you know he he just he left he was in Perth when mum died so he thought no I'm not going to sit at home here I'm going to go to bailing up where Sean and I were with our little kids I'm going to make a life for me he loved bailing up he was a country boy and he just he made his own friends straight away you know and he was into other bought microlite aeroplanes and flew them around and bought a motorbike and he reverted back to being like a, a bogan teenager. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um yeah, he he yeah, he did some stuff that mum probably wouldn't have approved of, but you know, he was having fun and he he just was living life and sucking the marrow out of life and that was just dad all over. So, And, and that was a great thing about mum. She was a, a much more tempering effect on him. But he needed that too because if he never met her, you know, he, I think he would have kind of 
got into a bit of trouble somehow. So they both were great for each other. Like he was really exciting and imaginative and but she loved that about him. Was was that goodbye harder? Um, for my mum. So, yeah. Oh yeah, well, yes. And that I talk to my mum every day and I haven't even touched on mum. It's funny, isn't it? But um yeah, every day I go to this place in my garden. Not every day, but nearly whenever something's bothering me or I'm worried. I just say a little kind of prayer, I suppose, to mum and just say, can you please look out for such and such or, you know, and that straight away makes me feel, right, great, that's going to be okay now. <laughs> and, you know, I know, you know, there's no rhyme or reason as to why that should work, but it just does for me. So, yeah, I love it. But she was a lovely, beautiful nurse, listening, kind funny person that and was a great sewer and taught me everything I know about dressmaking and I think of her every day. Her photo is right above my sewing machine and whenever I'm making something really important I always look at her and go, Mum, <laughs> you know what to do, which means she's going to make it go okay and I'm going to take the right path when I make <laughs> cutting decisions and stuff and she, it works, you know, or I'm looking for the missing button. Mum, help me find the missing buttons. Three, I need four. It'll turn up. It's amazing how much that's happened and, you know, I have great fun with her and she's just alive in my soul every day. She's such a big part of my life, even though I was 30 when she died and um, I'm 61 now, so, you know. But, yeah, the way they loved each other was a beautiful thing and that's why our family was so lucky to grow up under their parentage because they were just, they knew a fort. Or if they did, they kept it away from us. You know, they have their own private fights and we didn't know about it. They were very united, you know, front and they were really great in making us independent and learning the hard way and just getting out there and making mistakes, you know. Yeah, they just were the perfect balance for each other and for us too. So hopefully some of that's rubbed off on our kids, you know. <laughs> she... She's just so with me now that I don't feel like it's a death. It's she's with me. I talk to her, I communicate, I know how she thinks. I've got a really strong recall of who and how she was. I love bringing them to life. Yeah, and um, talking about things they said and did because yeah. people love it. You know, when you bring up someone's name that friend of ours you know that died prematurely and oh, I remember when she la 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 and she said this and everyone just laughs and goes oh god she wasn't she great you know and yeah. it just keeps the, the memory along living longer and you know there will be that point in time when no one knows who you or I are and to, to even have a conversation anymore you know like this is the ever-evolving thing that happens but yeah while I'm alive I'll try and make everyone alive for as long as I can anyway. Thanks for listening. This interview was recorded on the lands of the Wajak Noongar people and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This oral history collection was commissioned by the State Library of Western Australia and produced by Louisa Mitchell from the Centre for Stories. Narration by Louisa Mitchell. Editing by Mason Velios. And special thanks to executive producer and interviewer Rita Alfred-Sagar.